Well, good morning. This is the third week in a uh, five-week series being taught by the elders, one each. And uh, this is shifting gears a little from the first two weeks. It's the Occupy Till I Come series. And the title that I have for today is The War Has Been Won, But the Battles Continue. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was victorious over evil and the rebellion that had occurred. But he didn't totally annihilate the enemy at that time. In fact, he allowed him a degree of control in the territory that mankind occupies here. But when he made that decision, he also assigned his church to be his occupying force here in this territory where the enemy still has a degree of reign. So in a way, when we receive that assignment, and when do we receive that assignment? When do we become part of the church? When salvation came into our lives, we became enlisted troops for a sure battle, a sure spiritual battle that would be occurring in our daily life. So today we're going to look more at what it means to be occupying troops in enemy territory. We're going to look at how God has equipped us to deal with what's going to be coming and really how to fight the kind of fight he wants us to fight. I'm going to start out with a little bit of a story here. You may have heard of this person, uh, Hiro Onoda. And he was a Japanese young man towards the end of the war. Didn't even get his assignment until 1944. He and a bunch of other Japanese soldiers were sent to an island called Lubang, which was a part of the Philippines. And at the time, the war was still raging pretty strong at that time. But uh, this was an island where uh, there was some skirmishes going on. But uh, the Japanese people who were sent to that island were told to really hamper the enemy, to destroy anything that the enemy was trying to accomplish on this island, an airstrip, piers, things like that. But it didn't take very long. Only several months later, a huge force came that was partly American, partly Filipino, and they basically defeated the Japanese who were present on that island. But four Japanese refused to surrender or were not part of those who were killed, and they fled to the hills. And Hiro was one of those who fled to the hills. And uh, not only, the war ended just a few months later, really, and leaflets were dropped. They tried to convince any people who were still there that the war was over, but Hiro refused to accept that the war was over. So he uh, did not believe those. He had orders that said, do not give up, do not surrender under any circumstances unless your commanding officer tells you to do so. So this went on for years and years and years. And uh, because the Filipino police continued to try to get them out of where they were, there were skirmishes. There was a little bit of shooting. In fact, the Japanese killed some policemen over the time. And in time, two of the four Japanese were killed and one finally surrendered. But Hiro continued to refuse to surrender, and now we're all the way up into the early 1970s, which was nearly 30 years later. He refused to surrender, even though he had been told the war was over. A Japanese guy finally met up with him 
um, because he knew he was there, but even then he would not believe and give up. He needed that commanding officer to give him different orders to lay down his weapons. Well, finally, this Japanese person tracked down his commanding officer, who was no longer in the military, and he actually came and met with him, and he finally laid his weapons down, and it was 30 years later. So he continued, in his mind, the battle for at least 30 years. Now, what we're talking about today is not exactly this way, but he had been given the truth about what had happened, but he refused to accept it, and he kept on battling. And today we're going to look at a different enemy, a little different situation, but in some ways there's some similarities. So what we need to do is we really need to take a brief look at least at who our enemy is before we learn how to deal with it. Ephesians 6.12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil, in the heavenly realms. We not only have our own sinfulness, our tendency to sin that we struggle with, but we have spiritual enemies who are trying to take advantage of every one of our weaknesses and vulnerabilities. And we have a lot of them. We have a tendency to listen to the lies that we hear. Now these spiritual attacks take place in our mind. So fleshly weapons really will do little to help us in the battle. We need spiritual weapons. Well, the forces that we're fighting against, in our current culture, we struggle with the reality of those forces and the reality of these spiritual battles. The culture would tell you that there is no real Satan, there is no real devil. They're symbolic of the struggles maybe that we deal with, and that may even be in parts of the Christian church. But it is very real, and we need to talk about that today. And I'm going to be using the term Satan and devil interchangeably. You probably know that both of these names were given to the angel who fell. And you probably remember that his name before falling was Lucifer. Now, Satan means adversary, and it's Hebrew. The devil is actually an English version of the Greek word diablos, okay? But they basically are referring to the same, well, they definitely are referring to the same person, and I'll be going back and forth uh, with those terms today. Now, the Bible calls the devil, uh, these two titles, I'll call them. In Ephesians 2.2, we see him called the prince or ruler of the power of the air. And in 2 Corinthians 4.4, the God of this age, implying again this degree of reign that he has in the territory in which we live. So uh, I guess I want to step back for just a second here because we know that our, our enemy is Satan and his fallen angels who went with him. And we know that... Um, a third of the angels were swept out of heaven along with him and followed him in rebellion. So how many is that? Well, we really don't know the number. I really only find one place in scripture that turns us to numbers when we look at the number of angels and then maybe from that try to discern how many demons we may be dealing with. In uh, Revelation, 
I think that we find that in Revelation chapter 5, verse 11, where it says 10,000 times 10,000 was the number of the heavenly host, which would be 100 million. I don't think that that's an actual number. I think it's meant to imply that there are innumerable angels, at least 100 million, I would assume, that, that there are. And so if we say there's a third that many demons, at least we can conclude there are a lot of demons out there. Many, many millions of demons that followed Satan in his fall. Now today we're going to be talking mainly about our own struggles in dealing with this enemy, but we also have something that I'm not going to spend much time on, but right now I think it's important to say something, that we have angels out there. We have a spiritual battle going on because we're being attacked by the evil side of things. But are angels involved in spiritual warfare? Are they our helpers? Well, I would say we have at least one place to look in Scripture to get a positive yes to that question. And we can look in Daniel, chapters, I think, 10 and 11, where there is some discussion. An angel comes and appears to Daniel. It's an unnamed angel. But in his discussion of that, he refers to the fact how he was delayed in coming to Daniel because of a battle that he was raging with the prince of Persia, which was referring to a powerful demon. But he also refers to an angel, Michael, who helped him in that battle. So without spending a lot of time on the concept, I would like to at least say that the battle is not 100% ours against these evil forces in the heavenly realms. We know that there is something going on with angels in this battle as well. And how personal does that become? I think it's hard to find some very specific parts of scripture to point us to that. But something is going on and we may not be in this battle totally alone. I want to return to the idea that Jesus has already won the war because that is probably the key point today. I have a couple verses here that help emphasize that point that Jesus has already won the war, even though the battles continue. In uh, John 16:33, I have overcome the world. Referring to the world here is that system that is somewhat under the reign of Satan. In Colossians 2:15, it says, "He triumphed over powers and authorities by the cross." Well, this is past tense, first of all. And those powers and authorities are the same powers and authorities that we see referred to in Ephesians chapter 6. And Hebrews 2.14 says, By his death he broke the power of him who holds the power of death. So he's talking about Satan breaking the, that power that he had. And again, it is past tense. Jesus has won the war already. But he is letting Satan have that degree of freedom at the present time. Jesus' victory also was fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy from all the way back in Genesis 3.15 that says, Eve's seed will crush the head of the serpent. Eve's seed is Jesus, and Satan is the serpent. 
So when Jesus died and rose again, that was the victory. It was complete. Death was defeated. His work was finished. And when we trust in his work, we're the beneficiaries of that, uh, what came from that. So, if Jesus has already defeated Satan, why didn't he finish the job, you might ask? What's he waiting for? Why is he waiting till he returns to carry out his final judgment and punishment of the devil and all his rebellious angels? He knows our weaknesses. He knows our struggles. Why does he tell us, lead me not into temptation, when he has the power to eliminate the tempter right now. Or he could have done it when he defeated him. So, that's, a, I think, a question that maybe some of you have, have wondered why he continues to allow that. Well, unfortunately, the Bible doesn't just paint that answer to that picture real clearly, but I think we have some things we can take from Scripture that will give us an idea of why he allows this condition to continue and but we do know it is going to end we do know when he returns it will be over but he's allowing this time and he has perfect timing in everything he does but a couple ideas that I'll share with you why he may be allowing this to continue because when God's people experience and overcome temptations God himself receives the glory when people see you struggling any of us struggling, and we overcome and those trials and temptations, God receives the glory. And he allows that human suffering and pain caused by the enemy because through it, his mercy, his justice, grace, wisdom can shine more brightly. And through our trials, God does teach us and bring us to more spiritual maturity, and that means more dependence on him. So he has his reasons, whether we fully understand them or not. So what else does the enemy know about what is going to happen to him, to them? Revelation 12, 12 says he knows his time is short. Now whether that time has come when that actual statement applies, he still knows it is a true statement. There will be a time coming and from an eternal point of view, the time is short, no matter what. That domain of darkness that he rules over will end, and he knows it. And also, there is a time coming. They know, the demons know, a time will be coming when they'll be judged and tortured. Matthew 8.29 is the demons speaking. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? See, they know there is a time that's going to happen. And they know there's a place of eternal punishment created just for them. Matthew uh, 25, 41 says, Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. They know these verses just like you know them. They know there is a place where they're going to end up. And Satan knows there's going to be 
power given to another mighty angel to come and remove him from his current position as prince of the evil world system. And that's in Revelation 20, 1 and 2. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Satan knows that he is not all-powerful. He knows God can empower another angel to bind him and first imprison him, and then later, when he gets released, he gets cast by the Lord into the eternal lake of fire. Despite this knowledge that Satan and his demons have, they continue the fight. So we live in enemy territory, and we have an enemy who refuses to quit. And they know they're incapable of altering God's pl plan. So if these angels are so smart, as I think they are more, they are, have greater intelligence than us, probably, why don't they quit and repent and ask for forgiveness? Is that even possible? I don't think scripture is real clear on that one either. But it's sure nowhere in scripture that implies like there is any possibility that Satan and his evil angels can repent. And why is that? Well, we're not 100% sure of that. But um, some have said they've committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Does that concept even apply to fallen angels? I'm not sure. And that would be an unforgivable sin. Also, we do know that the severity of God's judgment varies according to how much knowledge a person possesses. And these are beings. So fallen angels who had the greatest of knowledge would be most deserving of God's severest wrath. But there's probably some other reasons, as shown on the slide here, why they probably just won't quit the fight, no matter what they know. Pride has got to be right at the top of the list. You know, Satan fell. That was the sin that led him to fall. He wanted to be like God. And he fell. And we know how hard it is to overcome pride. That's one of the hardest sins there is to overcome. We also know that Satan and all of his followers hate God. They hate what God loves. And God loves us. So they hate us. They want to harm us. They think they can actually bring grief or harm to the Lord by harming us. So they continue to try to do that. And there's a type of unrighteous hatred in them that leaves no room for surrender. You know, at the end times, there's going to be humans who gnash their teeth when things are occurring, but there is no sign of repentance in them. Those who are hardened, I see some of that same thing here. I see this hatred, this unrighteous hatred and gnashing of teeth, despite they know the truth of what's going to happen to them. And some of you may have heard of this scorched earth approach. They know they're going to eternal punishment in the lake of fire. And you know, in earthly battles, sometimes when a force who is losing the war and retreating, 
they will retreat and destroy everything along their path, anything of value, to the other side. Despite the fact that the war is over, they're going to do as much harm as they can as they retreat. And that's that scorched earth approach. And part of them going to eternal punishment in the lake of fire may be related to that scorched approach, that scorched earth attitude. And finally, they really know that it's not yet time for their punishment, so they're going to take advantage of every minute they have. So Satan's and his demons' battle plan includes the use of many strategies, and, and they're really the master of all of them. They are intelligent. They use their methods against believers and unbelievers alike, but I'd like to emphasize that as a believer, you cannot be possessed by a Satan or by a demon. Why is that? Because scripture says, he that is within you, and we're talking about the indwelling Holy Spirit, is greater than he who is in the world. You cannot be possessed as long as the Holy Spirit indwells you. And once he indwells you, he's not going to leave you. That's that security of a believer. But you can be deceived, you can be oppressed, you can be influenced, but you cannot be possessed. Each of these concepts is supported by multiple Bible verses, and there's at least one, I think, on your study sheet for each. One that you're probably most familiar with is up there in the top left corner, that the devil prowls looking for who he might devour. What's it meaning by prowling? He's looking for your weaknesses. He's looking for opportunity. He's also, once he gets to know you a little better, he starts scheming. He wants to choose the best time to attack you. And when is that? It may differ from person to person. It may be when you're sick or tired or frustrated or struggling in financial ways or whatever it may be, and you are just ready to be deceived when you're in those conditions. So that's what he's prowling around looking for, just the right timing, and he's studying you while he's doing it. Now the you know my teaching. I like to throw a cartoon in every now and then. And what I've got here, the, the Charlie Brown cartoon with Lucy li lifting the football. And I, I put that on there because Lucy uses at least three of Satan's strategies. She schemed, she deceived, and she lied. Okay, so deceiving and lying, you know, they, they may be the same thing in some circumstances. But how did she do that? Well, she had tricked him before. This isn't the first time. So she had to figure out, how can I trick him again? How can I get him to go for the same thing again? So she's scheming. She's figuring him out. She knows him. She actually played a game with him and, and tried to make him feel guilty of, of um, mistrusting her. And, and this time she's going to be different. She figured out, what lie would he listen to best next time? She always intended to lift the football up again, but she did blind him to the truth by her lies and deception. So we see those three ideas, uh, scheming, deceiving, lying, all showing up in that one example. One of the other ones you see up there is masquerading. Satan masquerades as an angel of light. Most of you are not probably 
going to listen to someone who is obviously a person of bad character or some other reason you're not going to listen. So what does Satan do? He tries to find vessels that he will use that you are probably willing to listen to. The person that I will listen to may be different than the person that some of you will listen to, or one group will listen to somebody and somebody else. Well, Satan uses whoever he thinks is most likely the one that you will hear and pay attention to to tell you lies. Another thing is that you are, dis he tries to discourage us. And, and how does that play out in our lives? Discouragement is huge in terms of impacting your service for the Lord. A lot of you probably have felt, uh, after trying to serve, somewhat discouraged by maybe a comment that somebody made. It might have been innocent. That person might have been, a thought may have triggered a person to say something to you that discouraged you from continuing in your service. And they didn't even know what they were saying, but Satan may have planted something in a person to discourage you from serving God further. And they hinder, Satan hinders your service. And what are we really uh, talking about here? Well, there's one example in scripture where Paul says that Satan hindered him trying to return to the Thessalonian church. Well, what, we aren't sure exactly how Satan and the demons work in the physical realm in which we live, but one way they can work is by picking their vessels who will speak to you and use them to hinder you. And there's a, a lot of ways you can think that your work, again, whether it's service or whatever it may be, maybe your ability to travel as a missionary gets impacted or hindered because Satan has influenced some people that could potentially get in the way of you continuing to serve in that manner. So there's a lot of strategies that we're having to deal with. Okay, so we've, we've got an enemy. He's going to be attacking us. Sometimes we have to make a decision. Oftentimes we have to make a decision. Do we fight or flight when this spiritual battle arises? And um, this one that is another example of this, does the, uh, the question of fight or flight is an interesting one because some of us may think flight is often part of the spiritual battle. Robin and I had a discussion about this and I'll just say she helped me understand a little bit more how I wanted to present the flight side of this. We hear in scripture or see and read in scripture a couple places we are told to flee and where are those places? We are to flee sexual immorality. We are to flee the love of money. We are to flee various types of sin. But what I want to suggest today is something that's a little different way of thinking. When you flee sexual immorality, when you and, and we'll talk about a couple examples of what that may be. Have you already won the battle when you flee? Have you already won the spiritual battle when you choose to run away from it? So are we really fleeing from spiritual battles or are we, 
Is that the outcome of a victorious spiritual battle? I would say it's the outcome of a victorious battle. And let's, let me give you an example. All of us are on the computer or on our phone or wherever it is. And I, I'll just say I'm more on the computer than the phone. Um, but how often does something pop up on that screen that is a temptation? And I will say that it's amazing that I'm on a very, what you think is safe website, and I'll get a pop-up that is like at the bottom of the page or wherever it may be, that is a sexually explicit photo that I have to make a choice when I see that to either click on it and look further or click away and go somewhere else, get away from it. What happens when you see that photo? I would say that is when the spiritual battle begins, when my eyes have seen it. Before I have fleed, do I take something captive, the thought of looking further and move on? I would say when I click away and avoid clicking on that, I have won the spiritual battle. If I click on it, I've lost the spiritual battle. So when I'm fleeing from sexual immorality, which is, that's an example of sexual immorality, I don't think we're really fleeing from that battle. We instead, we were being given defensive armor. And I'm not going to be going through all of that from Ephesians chapter 6 today, but if you're not real familiar with that chapter, you really need to study it. Because we hear about, we learn about the spiritual armor we have, which is truth, faith, salvation, righteousness in Christ. That's the armor, that's the defense we have that allows us to defend against these flaming darts of the evil one that are coming to us, whether it's the words of men or it's an image on the internet, whatever it is that's coming to us, that is our de defense. But then we have offensive weapons as well. We have prayer and we have the word of God are the two offensive weapons we have. And we need to use them or we're going to be a casualty. There is no way that we're going to win any battle without using that spiritual armor and our spiritual weapons. But I will say, we, that spiritual battle is just an instant in time, a second. Is our spiritual armor doing its job? Are we calling upon the spiritual weapons of prayer and God's word to overcome it? And when we click away and get away from that page, or when we get away from something else, we have won the battle. That fleeing that is coming follows a victorious spiritual battle. Okay, God has equipped us and directed us to do battle. He wants us to fight these battles, these spiritual battles. Like I said, he made us his enlisted troops to do this. But first he told us to inspect, expect persecution. This is going to happen, and this persecution can come uh, in the form of an individual who is maybe being influenced by Satan or some other demons, or it can be uh, in a variety of forms, and persecutions all over the board. It can range from fairly minor 
uh, mocking, ridicule, I would call that minor persecution, all the way up to much more serious punishment and death. But God's word tells us, as part of our battles, to contend for the faith. And what does contend mean? It all, one of the, if you do a study on that verse, you will find that it means agonize for the faith. Be willing to suffer for the faith. He says, fight the good fight. Kind of the same idea in 2 Timothy 4, 7. Fight the good fight. Be willing to stand. Stand firm. Ephesians 6, again, uses that term. Stand firm. And then in 1 Timothy 6, 20, guard what has been entrusted to our care. Well, what is it we're supposed to guard? We're supposed to guard the truth and the truth what is more important in the truth than the gospel of Jesus Christ is the most important thing of all. We are to guard that. We are to not compromise when it comes to the essentials. We are to guard it and be willing to pay the price for what it means to stand firm. And all of this fight is not to bring glory to ourselves because we're so good at fighting. It's to point back to the Lord and bring glory to him. So, when we're fighting our spiritual battles, he gives us, we've already talked about some of these, but I'm kind of just going to repeat them because it's part of our strategy. We talked about his strategies. These are some of our strategies. So I'm going to list them and make sure we have that as a uh, clear place to turn on how we can fight our battles. The spiritual armor, already talked about it. Again, I'm going to emphasize, do not enter into spiritual battles without your spiritual armor on. I, I used to lead a Bible study in my work for a long time. Um, and there was a woman who would come, an African-American woman came every week to this. And she just loved Ephesians chapter 6. And she'd pull that out as being relevant to almost, almost everything we talked about. You know, I, there's some people that, that there's their favorite sections of scripture. And she would pull that out, and it really does have relevance all over the place. When you start thinking about this, if you believe it's real, if you believe these spiritual battles are really happening, you need spiritual armor. And that's what this woman did. And then she retired. And Robin knows, what she give me? A little model of the spiritual armor guy. <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know how to describe it otherwise. It's a little model. It sits on my shelf now. And it reminds me, every time I wake up, I turn, and there it is, right next to me, my spiritual armor guy. And, uh, you know, it's not a bad thing to give a little bit of thought to that every morning when you wake up, that you better put your spiritual armor on and be ready and armed with your spiritual offensive weapons. Pray without ceasing. What more is there to say? You know, uh, we, can't, we can't survive our battles without calling out to the Lord as well for help because we're, we're just not strong enough on our own. We need him, and how do we reach out to him? That's through prayer. We have the Holy Spirit's indwelling power if we will only submit. We're not capable, you know, Jesus said, 
said how the uh, spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And we have the Holy Spirit to help us overcome that weakness of our flesh. And that's something that we need to take advantage of as well. We need to submit. And we need to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. And what does that mean, really? When you're entering into a trial, are you remembering Christ? Are you thinking about Christ and his word? Have you taken your eyes off of Christ as Peter did for a second when he tried to walk on the water and he sank? We need to keep our eyes focused on Christ no matter what trial comes our way. And that includes these spiritual attacks. So, this is my last slide, but it's, I've got a few things I'd like to really talk about with it. These spiritual battles are tiring. They make us weary. It's hard, it's hard to fight one after the next after the next. And they come in all forms, spiritual battles. Sometimes it may actually not be something that we would even think of as spiritual. It may be physical, but yet there's a spiritual side to it. There's just battles of all kinds. And we really are looking for a time of refuge, I mean a time of rest and a place of refuge, a place we can go to escape for a while. So you know, you may say, I do that every morning, I have quiet time. I go to my place of refuge and rest. I open the Bible. Well, do you think Satan stops his attacks because you opened the Bible this morning? Or do you think that might even be the time that he attacks you more? Have you ever tried to read the Bible and felt, I'm not really remembering what I just read? Or even a time of prayer, is your mind wandering to something else? Well, some of that is our own sinfulness that causes that because we're just thinking about something that really, be honest with ourselves, matters more to us than what we're doing. We're caring more about it, at least in the moment, than that. So what I would say is you really can never let your guard down. Even if you think you're taking time to rest in the Lord, even as important as that is and as valuable as that is, we can't let our guard down during that time. In fact, I haven't thought this through totally, but as I was preparing this, I thought, I need to do this better because I know I don't do a really good job of focusing on what I should be focusing on, meditating on when I'm in the Word. I'm getting distracted. Why am I getting distracted? Again, is it my own sinfulness or is it something that I would say is more related to spiritual warfare? The Lord doesn't want me focused. I mean, I'm... <laughs> that didn't come out right. <laughs> uh, Satan does not want me focused on the Lord. And so I open the Bible and he throws in my mind something that is really important to me right now, whatever that may be. 
we all have our distractions. So maybe we need to begin with prayer to help us not being here, hearing the voice of the evil one and distracting us from our time with you. You know, when we, uh, when we have trials too, rather than always try to escape to get strengthened or to renew our mind, maybe we can have that occur right in the midst of our battles. Maybe we can be strengthened during it during that time of sickness, during that really difficult business meeting, or whatever it is, we see that some when David faced Goliath, when he, he was really remembering the Lord and the promises of the Lord to help him in the battle with Goliath. Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, you see this verse here, where he says, we are pressed on all sides, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Paul seemed to have the idea, and I think his life story tells us, that he was constantly being pressed and crushed and persecuted. But what was his attitude right in the midst of all those struggles? They're not going to defeat me. They're not going to crush me. Even if I'm at a time when I, I can't see God working to fix this trial, I'm not going to be entering into a time of despair. I know I'm not forsaken. He knew that the Lord promised to never leave or forsake him. So I think that's what we really need to focus on. We are going to have these battles. They're never going to stop as long as we're living here in this body of, that we have. We are going to be attacked in a way that sometimes is hard to deal with, but we can be overcomers. The first couple, few chapters of Revelation where the letters to the churches were written, Jesus is actually speaking through John's writing where he says, you can be an overcomer and in some of those cases, he actually is referring to those attacks from Satan and the evil ones. And there's a reward for those who are overcomers. And that's the reward that we're really seeking. We are seeking a, uh, what are we seeking? When we meet Jesus, when we come into his presence, we're hoping that he recognizes us as that kind of overcomer who receives, receives that crown of life. That's what they talk about in Revelation, those chapters, to receive the crown of life. And we'd like to hear also, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, part of that, too, when we enter into his presence, is being an overcomer, standing firm, and just being willing to fight the good fight, run the race till the end. And that's what he's wanting for us, from us, his servants. So that's, that's our prayer, and I will end in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, truth that you have given us, that despite these battles that we will face, you have equipped us to be able to stand firm, to be able to fight the good fight till the end. We pray, Lord, that you will just help us to be strong, to not fear, to trust 
that you will never forsake us, but you will be there with us to sustain us. And we pray for your wisdom to recognize battles that enter in our life. And we pray, Lord, that you will just help us to make right choices to follow you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.